My name is David. I'm the pastor here. Really glad that y'all are here this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 20, and that is getting near the end. Uh, for the past probably five or six weeks, we've been looking at the end times and really asking ourselves, you know, what does any of that have to do with us? Um, I said way back at the beginning, I didn't feel like we were living in this uh, necessarily in the end times now. I think there's a lot of things that still need to shake out. But I do believe that the things that we read about, particularly in Revelation, are relevant to us because the end is like now, it's just more intense. The scope is universal and the intensity is kind of maxed out, but the same strategies that the enemy has to deceive and destroy the church at the end of time, he still uses now. And so we need to be uh, on the lookout, we need to be ready. That's uh, Jesus' word to us, is to be ready. Um, we've looked at the tribulation, we looked at the wrath of God, we looked at deception, we looked at Babylon last week. Um, we talked about the role of the Holy Spirit and how he kind of keeps us through all of those things. I do feel like I need to make one apology. Last week I was pretty rough on politicians, and I just want to say this. I don't, there, there are people uh, who love the Lord who are in politics, good men and women. Um, I was speaking more generally about the system as a whole and how it can be hijacked based on selfishness and self-interest. So uh, I guess if you're back, you weren't offended, and the people who are offended aren't here to hear my apology, so that might have been uh, fruitless. All right, this is Revelation 20. We're actually going to skip this, uh, but I, I don't want to skip it entirely, just in case uh, you have some questions. This is Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the, in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, when we closed out last week, we were looking at Babylon, which we said is this end-time anti-Christian kingdom that has massive political, religious, and economic influence to, to pull people away from the kingdom of God. We said ultimately there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of everything else. And Babylon uh, is used by the beast, by the Antichrist, to draw people away from the kingdom of God or to destroy those who are in the kingdom of God. And we close by looking at how Babylon was destroyed. The next picture you can go back and look at is in Revelation 19. It's 11 through 21. And most people would say it's the conclusion of something you can read about in Revelation 16. I think it's 12 through 16. Um, in Revelation 16, 12 through 16, there's this gathering of armies um, against God's people. 
Uh, it's Armageddon is uh, what some people refer to that as. And then it just cuts. You've got this picture of these armies gathering, and then John's on to the next thing, and he talks about Babylon. And most people would say Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, picks back up with this picture of Babylon and what happens. And what happens is you see, we see Jesus on this white horse coming down out of heaven with these armies, and he wipes out the bad guys, and it's done. And then the next picture is what we just read. And that's commonly referred to as uh, the millennium, this thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, I just want to give you a little information so you can make uh, your own decisions on what you believe. There are three basic ways of understanding this passage. And to be honest, I don't love any of them, but they're the only three options apparently. We've got one is called premillennialism. Premillennialism. That means Jesus comes back before this thousand-year reign. If you're a premillennialist, I need to, we need shorthand for that. Um, <laughs> what you would say, you take Revelation 20 literally. That passage that we just read, you say, yes, Jesus is going to come back and literally reign on earth, most people would say, from Jerusalem for a thousand years. There will be a first resurrection of people who um, were either killed during the... Um, great tribulation, along with other saints, they will rise, he will reign for a thousand years. At the end of a thousand years, Satan's going to be unleashed, and then you see, you've read the rest, there's this other battle which ends very quickly as well. So that's pre-millennialism. You believe Jesus is coming back before the thousand years. There's also post-millennialism, which believes Jesus is coming back at the end of this thousand-year reign. They take Revelation 20 less literally than the pre-people do. What they say is what's going on is Jesus is currently reigning with the saints in heaven. And uh, as time goes on, the gospel will be preached to all nations, and that preaching will be effective. It's not just going to be kind of a witnessing to people who reject the gospel. People will be saved, and as millions of people are saved, the climate spiritually of the earth will change. The earth will become more righteous, more holy, more like the kingdom of God. Not perfect but better. It will be this kind of period of divine blessedness that maybe lasts for a thousand years or maybe lasts for more. A thousand is it can be taken a lot of different ways. So they would say, yeah, maybe it's a literal thousand, maybe it's not, but the point is what, what, what God is talking about here is really uh, the gospel working through the church, through history, and Jesus will come back and we've kind of reached this uh, summit of human life on earth. It's, we've done as much as we can do with the gospel and everything is kind of rolling along and then Jesus comes back. So premillennialists might say Jesus is gonna, when Jesus comes back, the Antichrist is ruling and it's a wreck and he's coming to save the day. Postmillennialists say, no, Jesus is kind of coming. It's a welcome home party. Things have been going well and, we're bring, and he's coming back at this uh, opportune time when everything is rolling along. Then there are people called amillennialists. A in Greek is kind of means without. So they would say that there is no millennium. That's Revelation is the most metaphorical and symbolic book in the New Testament. The only place you read about this thousand-year reign is in Revelation, so let's just take it metaphorically and symbolically. It's real, but Jesus, it's not, you can't press the details in terms of saying Jesus is literally coming back for a literal thousand-year reign as a king on the earth. And they're all, they've got all these different ways of understanding that that we don't have time to talk about. But the bottom line is they would say it's a metaphor. Just like a lot of what we read in Revelation is symbolic 
and metaphorical. And we've talked about that before. I mean, they talk about beasts with horns. They're not really going to have seven horns on their head. That's a picture of something else. So is this, pe- so is this idea of the millennium. And um, they would say Revelation is not a chronological book. So just because you see it here at the end doesn't mean this is something that happens at the end. Oftentimes, Revelation kind of is circling like an airplane, and they're go- it's going over the same ground again and again. And so they would put this um, more kind of in the middle of things than they would here at the very end. Uh, pros and cons, and you can decide what you like. The pros for the, pre- the, pre-trib- or the pre-millennial folks, they take Revelation the most literally, which is always good. We don't want to get in the habit of saying, well, I don't understand this, so it must be a symbol, or I don't understand this, so it must be a metaphor. Because um, then, well, what about the resurrection? We don't get that either. So is that just a metaphor? So there, that opens up a whole can of worms to do that. So for the, the, the pro of the premillennialists is they do take Revelation 20 seriously and literally. And there's no indication in the text that you should take it as anything other than literal. Um, the con for me, one of the big cons, is, okay, Jesus in 1921 has pretty much wiped out all the bad guys. And then in 20 verse 4... He's ruling on the earth with all of these resurrected saints for a thousand years, which you assume would be good for him to be reigning for a thousand years. And then immediately, when Satan is released, he has an army, what does it say? Gathered, they numbered, uh, in number they are like the sand on the seashore. That's 20 verse 8. Now I want to know where those people come from. If Jesus has been reigning for a thousand years as the king on the earth, and he's already taken care of, he took care of the bad guys a thousand years before, so everyone who is alive, and I'm not sure how any of that works, how the earth is populated during this time, if all of these guys have been raised under the lordship of Jesus as king, how are they turned so quickly by the enemy? That's a pretty big question that I would have for pre-millennial people. Also, this idea of a two-stage resurrection separated by a thousand years, that's the only place you're going to see that in the Bible. Every other place in the Bible, it looked, it appears that everybody's raised up at the same time, and we all get what we're going to get at the same time. So those would be the cons of the pre-millennial. The post-millennial guys, their pros is they take the power of the gospel seriously. They say, Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. We're not just going out futilely saying, you know, giving, presenting the gospel so people can reject it, and then God's hands are clean when he sends them to hell. That's not the deal. People are actually going to be saved, and the Gospel is powerful to transform lives and ultimately to transform communities and societies. They take, post-millennialists take that seriously. Rather than being pessimistic about where history is headed, they're optimistic, not because they believe in all this innate goodness in humans. What they say is, I believe in the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. And as long as God has not given up on the earth, as long as the Holy Spirit is active, then there's no reason for us to give up hope. And so that would be a pro for them as they take seriously the Great Commission and they take seriously the power of the gospel to transform not just individual lives but communities and societies. Um, The con would be there's not a lot of evidence in the Bible or in history that things are getting better. It's just not there. And if you think about sin, sin is a corrupting influence and it makes sense that over time that influence would grow. So... Whatever with that, and then the con for them also, they got the same problem with the army that the pre-millennial people do. If the gospel is so effective and so many people are being won 
and there's so much transformation happen. How, how do these guys, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, where's the enemy getting these guys? How is he turning them so quickly if they've all, or many of them, have experienced salvation? The amillennialists, the pros, I think, is they recognize the nature of Revelation better than anybody else. They get what's going on in the book of Revelation. Nobody takes, even guys that say I take Revelation literally, don't take every bit of it literally. Nobody believes that there's an angel that's going to take a physical chain and wrap it around Satan's neck and put him in a hole. He's a spirit. Chains don't work. We all get that that's a picture. And it's a picture of Satan being bound. Like, we get that. Nobody takes every detail literally. It's just a matter of which ones we're going to choose to take literally and which ones we choose to take symbolically. And I would say the amillennialists get that. They understand that it doesn't mean that they don't view what's written in Revelation as totally inspired by the Lord and all of those things and good and, and right. They just get that different types of things are written. There are different types of literature and Revelation is, is symbolic. The con is what we said earlier. It's really dangerous to begin to just say, well, this is symbolic and a metaphor when the stuff, the text doesn't indicate that and it doesn't in this case. So you can pick what you want. I don't care. I honestly don't really think it matters. There's a lot of things I think matter. This is not one of the things that I think matters. I think if you want to be pre, you want to be post, you want to be A, take it. I, don't, I really honestly don't think that it has a huge impact on how you're going to live your life now. So um, you can choose. If I was pushed, I would probably just change the subject, which is what I'm about to do. So I, see, uh, I do see benefit in all three perspectives for sure, and I can see the shortcomings in all three of them as well, and I don't think there's really a, a very clear deal there, so I'm not going to die on that hill. Um, I read this book uh, last week. It's called Sway, The Irresistible Pull of Irrational Behavior. It's, uh, it's not a, a Christian book. It's very good. It's written by two, two brothers, Ori and Rom Brathman. One of them is a psychologist, and one of them is a, uh, an entrepreneur, and their basic kind of thesis is that there are these irrational forces that pull us into making bad decisions. And if we can figure out what those irrational forces are and we can recognize them, then we maybe won't give in to the sway. And they list four or five of these factors that sway us, and they've got all this cool research and these great stories that kind of make the book read pretty fast. There's one that I thought was the most, or was very interesting. There's a guy named Professor Bazerman, uh, who teaches graduate level economics at Harvard. So he's teaching MBAs. And the first day of his class, he, bring, he pulls out a $20 bill, and he says, we're going we're gonna to bid on this $20 bill. This is an open auction. And there's two rules. The first rule is that the bids can go up in dollar increments only. So you bid a dollar, then two, then three, then four. The second rule is the guy who wins, whoever bids the most, has to pay him the money, and they get the 20 And the second place person, whoever's second, also has to honor their bid. So if you come in second, you lose. So if Logan bids 17 bucks and he wins, he has to pay me 17 I give him 20 If Katie's second place with 16 she's got to give me $16, and she doesn't get anything. So the first two people have to honor their bid. And it starts exactly how it would start if I had $20 and held it up. Everybody's thinking, oh, $1, $2, $3. And it goes really fast up to about 12 And then when it gets to the 12 to $16 range, people start realizing what's going on. And everybody but the top two drop out. 
And so then we've got Cliff and Logan are the top two, and everyone else has pulled out, and they realize I've bid 17 and I've bid 16. And that's when one of these uh, irrational forces kick in that's called loss aversion. None of us like to lose. And none of us, the perception of losing something drives a lot of people to make really bad decisions. And so there's this $20 out here, and he's thinking, well, I don't want to lose 16. He's bid 17, so I'm going to bid 18. And the same thing with Logan. Well, I don't want to lose $17, so he bids 19. I don't want to lose $18, so he bids 20. And it goes back and forth every single time this guy's done it. These are smart folks. These are MBAs at Harvard. Every single time, people have paid more than $20 for a $20 bill. They can't pull up. One, one class, a, a guy paid $204 for a $20 bill. The dude who lost paid 203 Can you imagine? They, you, get in the, you get locked into these scenarios where you can't pull up because you're so, we're, we're averse to losing. Nobody wants to lose. He tells another story of a guy. There's a guy who's a, um, I guess he's a, he works at an investment house in Silicon Valley, and it says his name's Jordan. And uh, one day he had a guy come in, a client come in, who had just started a biotech company that got bought uh, and he's made. And he has this whole plan. He wants to retire to Martha's Vineyard, buy, buy a yacht. He has this whole scenario laid out. And he actually has the money to do that. His biotech company just got bought. And what uh, Jordan has, is saying to this guy, this investment guy, is telling the client, um, putting all your money back in your biotech company stock, that's all your eggs in one basket, that's a bad idea. We need to come up with a plan to sell. And so they do. And he immediately sells 10% of his holdings in this company that he has. And they say, you know, we're going to take the motion out of this decision. So they come up with a sell plan. Uh, and when, when the guy bought into the stock, this first sale, it was at 47 bucks. And then they had this deal. He sold 10% at $47. And then when his next uh, sell date came up on the calendar, the stock was at 42 and he said, I'm not selling because I've lost $5 per share over what it was. And this guy, Jordan's like, no, that you haven't. You haven't lost anything. You need to sell. If you keep it in here, it's dangerous. You're running a risk. And the guy says, no, when it gets back to 47, then I'll sell. The next month or so, it's down to 38. And the guy, Jordan's like, come on, you need, to, you need to get rid of this. And he says, no, now I'm down, from 40, I'm down $9. He says, if it gets back to 44, then I'll sell, and you know where this is going. It winds up at pennies, and the guy didn't sell, and he didn't get anything except for that initial 10% that he cashed out. He was loss averse. He saw, well, I've lost five bucks. He hadn't lost anything. In his mind, he'd lost $5, and he was going to do whatever he had to do to get that $5 per share back, and it wound up costing him everything. Nobody likes to lose. Nobody. Nobody, we go ask our kids out there, nobody says, what do you want to be when you grow up a loser? Nobody says that. That's not, that's, we're all loss averse, and that's not, that's not bad. I want to say that in terms of this. This is Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death. 
If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's kind of the last scene of history. Everything in Revelation 21 and 22, which we'll talk about next week, that's all in the age to come. This is the last scene kind of of this present evil age, is this final judgment where everybody is going to stand before God, and there are these books, and he's apparently looking in these books, and there's a book about each one of our lives that's saying, this is what you said, and this is what you did during your time on earth, however long that was, and God is going to give us what we deserve based on what's written in those books. That's the scene It seems very clear to me. That's where we're headed. Everybody who's ever lived is going to stand before this throne and be judged based on what is written about them in these books. And what I want to say is a lot of us are loss-averse. And we live our life wanting not to lose something that's, whether it's real or perceived. And we miss the fact that there really is someone keeping score. And a lot of times the way he's keeping score is different from the way we keep score. And what we're saying is, I want to win in this game. And I don't want to lose what I've got over here. And what really matters is what's happening over here. Because someone is keeping score. Uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis, I'm going to butcher this, but basically he said, if you, if you shoot for this world, if that's what you're aiming for, if you shoot for this world, you're going to lose it and the next one. If you shoot for the next world, you'll get it and the best of what this world has to offer. That's the deal. When we're, a lot of us, we don't want to lose things. And, and when you read the Gospels, you hear Jesus say, well, you've got to give up this, and you give up this, and you give up this, and people like me, you've got to give up this, and it's going to cost you this. And, and you, you hear, we hear that, and it can make us loss of I don't want to lose those things. I don't want to give up th- those things. I don't want to marry an ugly woman and live in Africa for the rest of them. I don't want to do that. And so we have this set of things that in our minds, following Jesus means we're going to have to give up, and we're loss averse, and so we don't do that. We do whatever we've got to do to hold on to whatever it is that we have, and we don't realize all along that what we're really giving up is this thing over here. There is a scorecard. It's just different. A few things on judgment. The first thing, the basis of God's judgment is our life. That to me seems very clear. It says, the, judged were, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And then just to make sure we get it, the next verse, each person was judged according to what he had done. So again, that to me is very clear. God's judging of us is not arbitrary. All he's going to do is open the book. So here, if this rings, I'm sorry when I walk over here. So like if this is... So, my name is David, so this is David's book. And let's say it's divided down the front, and I've got kind of the plus column, and I've got the minus column. Now, biblically, we we need to know what the standard of judgment is, and it's obedience. That's what we're going to be judged on our obedience, and we've said before, there's really only two commands. We love God, and we love people. That's it. So, that's what... God is going to look at each one of our life and say, how well did you obey what I told you to do? What did you tell me to do? I told you to love God and to love people. What does it mean to love God? It means to be fully dependent upon Him. What does it mean to love people? It means to do what's best for them regardless of what it costs you. So that's what God is looking for. Obedience in those two areas. Have you lived your life? The things that you've said, the things that you've done, are those things done out of love for God and love for people? 
Are you doing things that are done in dependence on God? We just said that earlier. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. Are you doing things in faith, depending upon the Lord? And are you doing things that are expressing love for others? Doing what's best for them, regardless of what it costs you. So over here, we've got love God and love people. And let's just, I can't, we won't list a bunch of specific things. Let's say I've done one, two, three of those in my life. And just two of those, because it's easier probably to love God than to love people. So I've done three of those and two of those in my life. And so that's what's on my plus side. And then on my negative side is everything else. Anything that I've done that I did not do obedient, that was not done out of love for God or loving others is over here. And so again, we won't be specific. We'll just make squiggly lines because I don't want to, I'm not going to confess my sin over the microphone to everybody who's here. So I've got some squiggly lines over there. And even, and this is important, First uh, Samuel 16, 7 says that God judges, He looks at our heart. And so it's not just what you do and what you say, but why you did it and why you say it. So let's say I went and I served lunches at Must. I cared for the poor, but that's great. And so I would think, well, that's here. That's loving people. But the reason I did it was because I was trying to get close to this girl and she was going to be, well, that puts it back here because it was selfish. I wasn't doing it because I cared about anybody but me. So that knocks it out, even though it looks like a good thing because I did something that was nice for other folks, but I did it for selfish reasons. And so God says, I, I'm looking at your heart, and that's great that you helped other people, but it doesn't, it doesn't go in the good column because he's looking at our heart. He's looking not just at what, but he's looking at why. And it's not just what you do, it's also what you say. Matthew 12, I think it's 34, says... We're going to be held accountable for every careless word that comes out of our mouth. That is overwhelming. And so you've got what you do and what you say. And this isn't heavy. This is just real. And it's not, again, that God is mean. That's what people, Well, God is going to judge. Well, that's just mean. And that's not fair. And why can't he just let everybody in? And nobody's perfect. And blah. You know, we want some sliding scale of things. The deal is the scale on this is pass-fail. Everybody likes a pass-fail. But the only passing grade's 100. So that's the catch. It, there are only two, you get an A or you get an F. But the only way you get an A is you get 100. A 99 is an F. It's pass fail. He's looking for obedience. And the deal, throughout the Bible, you'll see the wages of sin is death. When you miss the mark, when I or you do, do anything that can't go on the right side under the pluses, anything that's not done in faith, things that are not done as an expression of loving God or loving others, those things then get put over into the negative column. And once you get one thing in the negative column, well then that opens the door for death. And again, that's not because God is mean. That's because the consequences of sin can't be avoided. And we can argue with him about how he set up the world, but he set up the world. And that's the way it was set up. The wages of sin is death. And I actually would say this is more an expression of his mercy than a sliding scale. Help me to remember, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. And then we also see this. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire. So we've got this. We've got David's book, which has the good things I've done throughout my life that were done, that were expressions of loving God and loving people, the negative things that I've done that were everything else, the things that I've done with other folks that were not loving, the times I haven't been fully dependent upon the Lord. All of those things get over here in my negative column. And what God is going to say is he's going to open my book and he's going to say, okay, what does this book say? David gets. He's not being mean. He's just saying, I'm looking at the book here, and what does it say that you get? And we just 
I just told you, the, the wages of sin is death. So if I've got anything over here, any place where I've missed the mark, that's what sin is, missing the mark. If I've got any of that, well, then I get death. It's kind of like God's got to deal with this stuff before he deals with this stuff. He's got to take care of the negative things before he takes care of the positive things. Before I can be rewarded for the good I've done, I've got to pay for the bad that I've done. And then the bad thing for all of us is death lasts forever. So we actually never get to this part. But there is another book. And the Bible says that there's a Lamb's book of life. And so there's another book, and we'll just call it the Lamb's, what the Bible says. It's the Lamb's book of life. And it's got tons of names in it. Everyone who's ever trusted in Jesus, anyone who's repented of their sins and said, Jesus, I need your help to live this life. I did that when I was 12. So thankfully for me, my name is right there. And then there are all these other names before me and all these other names underneath me. And the way it it looks like to me is the first book God reads is this book. And what he's doing is you come up and he's looking for your name. And if at some point in your life you've repented of your sins and you've said, Jesus, I need help, and you've lived based on that decision. We've talked about that before. This isn't, have you ever prayed some prayer when you were six and then you walked away from that and it never changed your life? That's not what I'm talking about. Do you have a relationship with Jesus through faith? If you do, then this is pretty cool. I think what happens is all of these negative things somehow get scratched out. And so in my book, it's not that I didn't do these things. They just get scratched out because my name is there. So the first thing God's going to do is he's going to look and see if your name's in this book. If it is, then when he opens your book about your life, all of your negatives are taken care of. And so then... All he does is look at the positives. And we've talked about this before. We will be rewarded. I don't know what that looks like. We will be rewarded on the good things that we do. And that's a teaching throughout the New Testament. God will reward you for the good things that you've done. The issue for anybody is if you've got negatives that haven't been taken care of. Because they, those things have to be paid first. You've got to pay the fine first. And the fine is forever. But if your name is found here, then all of your negatives are already paid for. And they're blotted out. I think that's uh, found in Isaiah. He blots out our transgressions. So he's done this to all of the negatives, all the things I've done in my flesh, all the times I've acted in anger, all the times I haven't been loving. And all he'll see is this, however big this list is, and I'll be rewarded based on what's in there. And that's where we're all headed. That's the deal. And in my world, sometimes... We live like that isn't real. And so what I'm trying to do is not lose stuff here. I'm loss averse. We all are. We don't want to lose things, real or perceived. And so I live not to lose things here, not realizing that me sometimes holding on to things here means I'm writing stuff over here. And then I'm really losing. That's when I really lose is once I, when I fill up this side of the ledger. And again, I don't think judgment doesn't, to me, have anything to do with God being mean or not liking us or any of that. What I would say is, would you rather be judged based on what's written in your book or what's written in his book? Those are the choices. You can be judged based on what's written on your book on the left or what's written on his book, the one on the right. That, to me, is a pretty good deal. 
It's not a matter of there being a sliding scale or a curve or the belt. It's none of those things. It's pass, fail, and to pass, you get 100. You have to get 100. And there's this other book. And if your name's in it, then it takes care of all the other stuff. And you're good. So you can have that, or you can be judged based on what you've done and roll the dice. In Islam, that's what they teach. There's an angel on each shoulder recording everything that you've done, good and bad. And you're going to die, and you're going to stand before Allah, and he's going to crack open the books, and he's going to say, well, what outweighs what? And you don't know. There's no security in Islam in terms of whether you're going to paradise unless you're martyred in the holy war. Nothing else secures your salvation. You just wonder, when I die, have I done enough? You don't have to wonder. You don't have to wonder if you've done enough, if your name's written in the book of life. Let me close with this picture. James 4.6 says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Kind of the, the core, to me, understanding of humility in the Bible is dependence upon the Lord. That's what it means to be humble. It doesn't mean to be a doormat or to think really lowly of yourself. It means to be dependent upon the Lord. And the core of pride in the, in the Bible is to depend on yourself. So those who depend on the Lord will receive God's grace. We've said before, God's grace is unmerited favor. So if you want to receive God's unmerited favor, and none of us get merited favor, because we've all got stuff written on the negative side of our book, if you want to receive that, your only choice is to remain dependent upon the Lord. And to me, everything that we've been talking about, as you read throughout the Bible about God's grace and God's activity, sometimes it can appear that he's mean to people who don't, it's like, well, you're not playing with him, so he smites you or whatever, and that's not the deal. To me, God's activity is like this wave that you see behind me, and it's moving in a certain direction, and we have two choices. We can either surf it, and it's going to take us where he wants us to go, or we can stand in front of it and shake our fists, and it's going to swamp us. The wave is the same. It's not that God's nice to some people and mean to some people. It's none of that. His activity is the same. This wave of his activity in our life, his grace, his love, his power, all of those things are moving in a particular direction. And you have two choices. You can ride the wave or you can get swamped by the wave. The wave has not changed. You have. It's your position relative to it that matters. And so my question for you is, are you going to stand against the purposes of God? If so, that 60-foot wall of water will swamp you. Not because God hates you, but because you're standing in the way. And if you cooperate with the purposes of God, if you're humble and you depend on him, then you'll be like that guy. And it might be scary at times, and you're going to wonder if you wipe out. But ultimately, he is going to carry you where he wants you to go. And next week, we're going to talk about where exactly that is. Let's pray. You guys can come back up, both. Y'all can stand. We're going to have uh, some, a couple of ministry teams up here that will be willing to pray with you about whatever's going on if you're part of one of those teams. If y'all would go ahead and come up. We'll pray with you about anything. If you know What we talked about earlier, if you've got uh, that rings true, either the thing about your mom or you know opportunities, if you want us to pray with you about that, we will. Uh, obviously, if you're hurt and we want to pray about those areas. But I want to specifically uh, say this. If you would say this morning that you're not sure you're riding on this wave, that you just might be standing there kind of shaking your fist at it and you wonder if that thing's going to come crashing down on you. 
uh, we want to pray for you, that you would cooperate with God's grace and that you would allow his grace and his love and his power to take you where he wants you to go. Um, whether that's ultimately in terms of your salvation, if you're trusting in your book and not in his book, that's, you don't want to do that because yours isn't perfect. I don't know you, but I know it's not perfect. So uh, just I would, we're, I'm going to pray, and I'd encourage you to respond however you feel the Holy Spirit leading you. God, we do thank you um, that there is a book of life. God, otherwise we'd all be sunk. And I thank you, Lord, that if our name's written there, then our place with you is secure. Our future is secure, and we don't have to worry about what we're going to lose because we're going to gain a whole lot. And so, Lord, I pray if there are any here today who are trusting in themselves, any here today who have not said yes to you, Jesus, maybe they've been in church for 20 years, but they've never said yes, I pray today would be the day. You say today is the day of salvation, and we want to believe that, that today is a day of salvation for any here who haven't put their faith and their trust in you. God, for those of us who have, but we would say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not all the way there yet. There's still areas of my life where I'm not riding this wave, where I'm I'm opposing you. I'm, I'm trusting in myself. Lord, I pray you bring conviction there. We want to yield to you at every turn in every area of our life, God. We don't want to resist. So I pray you would come now as we worship and you would minister into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All day. You know, and the prognosticators of what could or could not happen or may happen and, and the economy and all, you know, I don't want to live like that. And God's, God's economy and the Word of God teaches us that we don't have to live in that. So I wanted to take today and just give us a few things to help us walk through that. I want you to look at the... Uh, and so I've given you actually more than I can get through in that sense today. We will fill in all the blanks for those who have that sort of thing. <laughs> You know, but uh, that's why I don't do too many blanks. Because frankly, you know, I would go home from places where they did all the blanks and I'd, I'd miss one. I'd be like, it messed the whole thing up, you know. So we will get the blanks filled. But what I've put in your hands is something that you can rehearse this week. Paul told Timothy, this young man, he was mentoring in faith. And, and Timothy was this young guy. He is a young man who had been raised by his mom and his grandmother and and he needed the masculinity of Paul in his life. And Paul was a mentor and a father figure for him. And, and, and then he took Timothy, seeing the gift in his life, and put him in charge of this church, a megachurch, like 60,000 people in this church. And, and what he told Timothy was, you have to continually stir up the gift that's in you. You've got to keep walking in faith. You've got to stir it up. You've got to rehearse it. You keep, you've got to keep going through this. And get it in your life. Otherwise, all the cares of trying to shepherd 60,000 people are going to overwhelm you. How many of you feel like you're trying to help 60,000 people sometimes? It's like everywhere, it's just life is going on. And, and it can overwhelm us. Look at the first scripture here. I want to read this out loud and together, all right? Romans 5.3. Ready? Here we go. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us. Because He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. In other words, that is the connect in which we know God loves us. So the first blank, you ready? 
God loves me. Write it in there. God loves me. Don't put Paul. Put your name. Put you. God loves you. God loves me. And that is a revelation because when we begin to dial into that, we realize, you know what? He really is about my good. He really does love me personally. Luke in the 8th chapter is a, a, a great story because it's a, a bunch of disciples. And one of the things we have to remember about the disciples is, is they were just real people. They were like you and I. It's just they were kind of hanging around with God Himself in the form of human flesh called Jesus Christ, all right? And they get called by Christ to hang with Him and walk with Him, and He's going to teach them. And He's going to teach them and establish the kingdom. So these guys are with the Son of God. In Luke, the eighth chapter, it says they get in a boat and they head across this lake. Jesus says, we're going to the other side. Now, as they head across, Jesus is so confident in the fact that he said they're going to the other side, he's not worried about anything. He goes to sleep. Storm comes up. All these guys start freaking out. Now, some of these guys have lived on, on these kinds of waters. They shouldn't be that worried. It must have been a pretty bad storm. Jesus is still asleep. Bad storm. He's asleep. They're crying out, Ah, oh, we're going to die. Great men of faith, right? Disciples. We've got to understand and realize they're just real guys. They're just like you and I. And they go to Jesus and they say, We're going to die. We're going to die. Help us. fact is this, is that fear is a normal emotion. Put it in there. It's one of those blanks right there. Fear is normal to life. It's normal to have fear. It is, it is, Jesus didn't say, you know, you should have, be, between the time that you walked from the front of the boat to the back of the boat, you should have been great men of faith. You should have, something should have happened. No, he stood up and he said, let there be peace. And then he said, you've got to build your faith up so that in these times of storms, you're not shaken by things. That next blank says, Jesus declared what? Peace against the fear. When there was a storm, he said, let there be peace. Look at Philippians 4, 6. Don't keep on worrying about anything, but in everything. Everybody say everything. Do what? What does it say to do? Pray. Then God's peace will guard you like a sentinel. In other areas, another translation says it will guard your heart. And then your heart and mind will be secured. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, Proverbs 15. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Word teaches many times, 2 Timothy 2.22, it says, flee youthful lusts or run away from those things that try to get on you. But the, but the issue is, which way are we running? What happened to the disciples, they went towards Christ. The one good thing they did is they walked the right direction. They went towards Jesus. Now here's, here's the interesting thing is we so often say, Okay, well, if I'm going to pray over this situation, I've got to pray this like faith thing. Oh, thou verily who art the God of all great creation and faith, thou speakest to me faith, oh God. I don't know what I'm saying, but you know what I mean. You know what I mean? And we, and we try to come up with this faith prayer thing, right? Well, what was the prayer of faith? that the disciples prayed that calmed the storm. Because did the storm get calm? Huh? Did it calm? Did Jesus Christ say, peace? Right? So he answered their prayer. What was the prayer? 
God save me! I'm going to die. Understand what I'm saying? In other words, what's happening is it wasn't necessarily the fact they were filled with faith is that they went to the one who is filled with faith. It wasn't because they had built up something in them before they got there. They went to their source of faith. They said, if there's one place we can go where there is faith, it's to Christ. And they went after Him, the source of our faith. And that's why the Word says, when the righteous run towards Him, He's a strong tower. It's when we run the opposite direction that we have issues. See, issues will come to all of our lives. Look on here. It says in John 16, The Father is with me. I've told you all this so that trusting me you will be what? Unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. In this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties. Why did he put the word continue? I don't know. I don't like it. I would like it if he said you will experience difficulties and I will defeat them and then they won't happen again. Wouldn't that have been better? Come on, be real. Come on. It's like, God, that would have been better. But he says you're living in the middle of a fight between good and evil. You're going to experience difficulties, but take heart. What does it say? I've conquered the world. John 10.10. A thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so everyone would have life. And what kind of life? Life to the fullest. Now, here's the the next thing. Here's the, the issue then. That storm was not a storm that was going to stay. It was a transition moment. The negativity they were experiencing was transitory. It was moving through. Psalm 23, David says, I don't camp in the valley of death, but I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't stay there. God always ends things on a positive, but we may go through the negative to get to the positive. The journey to the promised land went through a difficult moment. When they got to the Red Sea and the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and they got to the Red Sea, who took them there? A bad map? Uh, You know, like a a bad guide? Who took them there? Who led them there? It's not a trick question. You can say that. God did. I hate those trick questions where you go, no, you're wrong, and you were the one person who spoke out. God led them there. God led them to the Red Sea. He's the one that said, here's... And why did He lead them there? In order to show His strength and His power. Now, here's here's the issue. Let me read something out of Romans 8th chapter, and I marked it down there for you. And, And here's another blank. Romans 8. The world system is set up for frustration. Who did that? God did. Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frailty, futility, condemned to frustration, not because of some intentional fault on its part, but by the will of Him who subjected it. Who was that? That was God. Why? With hope that creation itself would be set free from bondage to decay and corruption and into the glorious freedom of God's children. In other words, what God, what God has done is set up a world system that is full of frustration. And quite literally, what it, what it means in Romans 8 is there's a compression of time. And as the world has gotten older, as we have moved now into the 2000s, there is a greater compression of time. I thought, I mean, when I was young, we were told when computers come along and we're inventing these things and when everybody gets one, 
your life is going to be so easy. The paperless office. <clears throat> Remember the paperless office? And then only to find out computers can create more paperwork faster than anything that's ever been created. Right? And, 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 and when we thought we were going to have more time, we have less time. Have you ever noticed it? Doesn't it seem like, you know, I mean, we think about, oh, the good old days. You know, when all we did was work from sunup to sundown. Now it's like it's there 20 hours a day. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It seems like the compression of time. And what the Word says is that God actually created a system in that way so that the frustration of that system, the compression of that system would make people start to run and His hope is that they will run to Him. So that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So when the compression comes... See, when did you come to Christ? When did you come to be a follower of Christ? Was it when everything was going great? Hey, you just got a Ferrari. Think I'll become a Christian. Awesome. Was that it? No. It was the moment where they came and took the Ferrari. <laughs> it's like... It's my Ferrari. Oh, God. You understand what I'm saying? It was, it was that moment of crisis... Right? It was a compressed moment, the same the disciples had where we turned to God. Got a friend of ours, Julie Anderson, and she was in this tough moment. And and she was walking across the room and she heard God's audible voice speaking to her, saying, Julie, I've been waiting for you. And she walks out and she doesn't know what to say. She doesn't know the oh thou God who art, you know, and all this. She just all she does is go, Oh God, help me. Oh God, help me. And boom, right then her life is radically changed. Totally transformed. Didn't pray all the one, two, three, A, B, C, D stuff. You understand what I'm saying? God responds to the person who comes to Him. James says if we come to Him, He inclines Himself towards us. And the picture of the prodigal is that when the prodigal turned his way and started out of the compression of his life and the failures and the frustration, when he began to go towards the Father, the Father ran towards Him. That's not just a story. That's a picture of our Father in Heaven who runs towards us when we turn toward Him. Somebody go, that's good, Paul. Somebody, that's the way to go. It's awesome stuff. All right. Look at, look at it on your outline. This is Philippians 1. It says that because of the Gospel, because of what God's done in our lives, we are confident that He's begun a good work in us. We'll complete it. God always ends in a positive. I say to you, you're Peter. Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to conquer it. God's purposes and plans are for you personally. And your circumstance does not dictate God's reaction. It's the position of who you are and where you're facing. It's, it's your relationship. Now, the thing is, when, when people came to Christ, when, when people would, would say, hey, uh, Jesus, we've got an issue. Here's a guy that, that's blind. And Jesus didn't look at him and go, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, have you been blind since birth? Or was it like, did it come on later? Well, since birth. And, and, and he goes, oh, oh, bummer. I can't do that. I don't know how to do the birth ones. I know how to do the ones that came along later. But I don't know how to, you know, Jesus always had an answer. They never stumped him. They were, it was never like, man, I don't know what to do, you guys. Anybody got an idea on this guy? You know. Got to get the leg thing, get the leg problem. I don't know. I haven't done this one. Peter, you got an idea? Peter would always go, yeah, I got an idea. Right? They never stopped. Jesus always had 
a solution. The gospel has a solution. Turn to somebody and say, this is really good for you today. This is good for you today. God always has a strategy. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the thoughts and plans I have for you, plans not for your failure, but for your success. God says, and it's an interesting juxtaposition within that chapter when you look at it and break it apart, what happens is, is God says, listen, I know, because people are talking. Here's what God's going to do in this thing. Here's, here's why God's doing this. Here's what's happening here. And God says, time out. They don't know. I know. See, we listen to the prognosticators, and these guys are talking about Monday night. Well, here's what's going to happen tomorrow. Or Sunday night. Here's what's going to happen this week. Tuesday night. You know, CNN. You know, Fox. MSNBC. Yeah, all these. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. You know, fact is, they don't know. They're filling airtime. They're trying to sell commercials. Come on, seriously. The news channels are not about news necessarily. Otherwise, they'd tell us everything. It's about the stuff to get us to watch so that we watch the commercials. All right. So they don't know. God says, I know. They don't know. Here's a principle. Look at it. Winners look at what they're going to. Losers look at what they're going through. See, what God wants us to have from His Word is a vision of what He's going to do in our lives that we will find a place of freedom, that He will set us free, that He will calm the storm. See, the issue we have so often is our, is our, our definitions of what this is. The Bible says when Jesus stood up, He said, let there be peace. Peace be still. Right? Anybody know that story? We talk about it? Okay. So what happens is He says, Peace. Now, now, what you allow to define you will determine your destiny, so definitions are important. So what happens here is he says, let there be peace. Now, in the definition of our world, peace is the absence of war. If you look it up, peace is the absence of war. But peace in the definition of the Word of God is the presence of God in the middle of war. It's His presence in the middle of a storm. His Peace is that in the middle of a shaking time, I am unshakable. Amen? So that's the definition. That's who he is. Let's let's hurry through it. So Teddy Roosevelt said, you can't fight hard unless you believe you're fighting to win. In other words, there has to be a vision. God, you're you're going to win in my life. I am headed to a positive place. Jesus won the victory over hell, Satan, and death. Courage in our lives is a result of embracing faith in God. But it's a fight. Go to the next page. How are we doing? Everybody okay? Now, 1 John 4, 4 says, Children, little children, you're of God. You belong to Him and have already defeated and overcome them, the agents of the Antichrist or the enemy, because He who lives in you is greater or mightier than he who is in the world. So the life of Christ in us is greater than those, than those things outside of us. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. So the only way he was able to fight was keeping the, what? Faith. So it was the faith that he had that God was going to make things happen that allowed him to fight, that gave him the ability to go after it. If you, didn't, if you weren't here last Sunday, you need to go on the Internet and listen to the message on vision. That will fill you with, with something because you've got to have a vision of what God's going to do. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is believing what you cannot see will come to pass. Fear is believing what you cannot see will come to pass. 
So it's the same definition, but it's the direction in which we're facing for that definition. It's the object of what we're believing in. See, see, people who believe everything's going to blow up are also people of faith. Their faith, though, is it's all going to blow up. So everybody has faith in something, even if it's the negative. So it's the position of your heart. So we turn towards Christ and we say, I have faith that you're going to win. So our faith then builds us up and takes us away from fear. Next thing. Here's the deal. Enthusiasm is a motivating force, but you can't build a life on it. Optimism is an attitude, keeps a person positive, but it's unable to sustain life. But faith is a substance on which life can be built, and truth is its foundation. Faith deals in reality. Faith, faith doesn't say, well, that stuff doesn't exist, or that does, that's not really happening. Or that's not. Faith says, here's what's happening, and I'm going to declare the power of God into my situation. In reality, not in denial. There was a guy named uh, Commander Stocksdale, and he uh, was flying over Vietnam, and he was shot down, and he ended up incarcerated and in, in a terrible situation in jail for eight years. And at the end of that, when he came out, they asked him, they said, well, there must have been a great optimism in you that you would get out that kept you going. And he immediately replied and said, no. He said, the optimist died. He said, it was those with faith who got out. Because optimism would say, we're going to be out by Christmas. Optimism would say, well, we'll be out by March. Optimism would say, and then it wouldn't happen, and then it wouldn't happen. But faith says, no matter when it happens, I'll still be standing. Faith says, I'm walking through. I'm enduring. I'm pushing through. It doesn't matter what, when, what it takes to get there. I'm going with this thing. I'm following Jesus. That's faith. And He's the one who gives us faith when we don't have faith. A feeling of total confidence. Look at Romans, the 10th chapter. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. And the next scripture didn't quite click in there, but, but it says that it's, it's from Psalm. It's from the first chapter of Psalm. Oh, it's not at the end. There it is. Psalm 1, verse 1. Happy are those who don't listen to the wicked and who don't go to where sinners go and who don't do what evil people do. In other words, don't put yourself in bondage of the world system. Don't put yourself there. Don't go there. I give you an example. You know, people, uh, you know, we tithe on a regular basis. And what happens, things start shaking. And so we stop tithing. We stop and we pull ourselves out of God's financial system. We, we literally pull ourselves out and go to the world system, which is a system for frustration and for decrease, not increase. We pull ourselves out of that. God says, don't, don't live that way. They love the Lord's... Uh, and do what people do. They love the Lord's teachings over those who, who uh, are happy. Love the Lord's teachings, and they think about those teachings day and night. They're strong like a tree planted by a river. That tree produces fruit in season, and its leaves don't die. Everything they do will succeed. Faith attracts the positive. Fear attracts the negative. Faith will attract the positive. Faith, fear attracts the negative. When you put yourself under the world system and get under that fear, it's going to attract negative things in your life. Negative thinking, negative things. I mean, if you're trying to sell something, you're in sales and you're trying to sell, it's going to put negativity on your life. Private philosophy determines public performance. Your thought life is the key to building faith. Let's go through these real quick. Look at this. This is awesome. And I gave you these not just like read them all because I'm not going to get them all finished. But, but so that you can take these and rehearse them, all right? 
That's why you all got a piece of paper, put it in your Bible, put it somewhere, get it out, you know, and look at it and go, okay, this is what God said. Fear not, I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. I'm your God, Isaiah 41. Romans 15, may be filled of hope. Fill, may hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. Be strong and courageous from Joshua. And he's talking to Joshua. Moses is that. Be strong and courageous. Do this stuff and you'll succeed. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Look at Hebrews uh, 5. Look, Go down into there about halfway down. It says, uh, 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 okay, first uh, says, Circumstances what you have for God himself has said, I will not in any way fail you nor give you up nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not. That's from the Amplified. That's great. Is that great? I will not. Take that and put, he's talking to me. Just circle it and write that next to me. Next to it. That's for me. That's for Michael. That's for Kaylee. That's for me. Right there. Look at that. That's for Micah. Write your name down. This is for me. Psalm 149. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He'll beautify the humble. And let the saints be joyful. I like the last part. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hands. In other words, let's go fight this thing. You know, praise God, have a sword. Yeah, I love that, man. That's a, I mean, I don't know. You know, I'm just, I love that whole uh, concept of, and let the ladies rejoice and have a sword too. Amen? Come on. Let's, let's fight this thing. Fight for your kids. You know, fight for the situations going on in your life. Fight negativity. Don't give in to it. You know, this whole thing of the passive Christianity just just gets me twisted, man. You know, this whole thing of, uh, like, I'll give you one of them. Turn the other cheek. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever had that said to you? Ah, oh, you're a Christian. you got to turn the other cheek. Well, let me tell you what that means. Here, here's what that means. This is, this is huge. It was under Roman occupation that, that was said. And what would happen is the Romans would come up. Uh, hey, uh, TJ, come here. Come here. All right. So what happens is... Uh, so, yeah, now, you ready? Okay, I'm going to hit you really hard. Is that okay? Are you good? All right, good. Now, you ready? Okay. So, <laughs> so what happens is the Romans would come up. Now, look at this. They would take the man, because what the Romans did is subjugate cultures. They invented crucifixion. And they would subjugate cultures by crucifying people on the roads in and out of cities. And the other thing they would do is they would go into the areas and neighborhoods and they would take a couple of the strongest guys and they would try to basically shame them or make them smaller as people to show their power. And the way they would do that is they would come to the man of the family and they would, they would slap him. No, no, it's okay. Man. And they would slap him with an open hand. Now, if, I, if you come up to a guy and you say, let's go, and you start fighting and you're hitting them and you're, you know... Like this sort of thing. I mean, that, that's different. But if you hit a guy with an open hand, how many of you know that's like, that's like disrespect? I mean, you guys know that, right? I mean, it's, it's a whole different thing than just getting hit. It's, you get hit, great, you got the first shot, I'm getting the last one, right? Right? This one's a hospital, this one's a cemetery. Come on. Right? That's, that's when I call Shane. Shane, dude, I need some help, right? But you understand what I'm saying? In other words, if, if I did this, then that's like, that's like fighting. But if I do this, that's like disrespect, and it would shame the person. And in that Eastern culture, it would be so shaming that everybody in the area would go, oh, 
And he didn't do anything back. He didn't fight back. Or they would try to get him to fight back because there was such disrespect and shame that they would fight back. And when they fought back, they would then take him down. Beat him up, take him to jail, kill him. Because you fought back against a Roman soldier. Thanks, man. That was awesome. Truly. But here, watch this. So what happens is, what happens is he says, he says, when you get slapped, turn the other cheek. In other words, be so big in faith, be so big inside of you that when you get slapped, you go, that's it, do the other one. Boom. Yeah? All right, okay, this one too. All right, this one. In other words, so strong, so big in you that when the world slaps you, your reaction is the power of God is in you, Christ is in you, and you say, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. You can slap me, you can hit me, you can talk bad about me, but you know what? My God's bigger. And He'll win. And I'll be successful. Come on, somebody. Amen. For God didn't give us a spirit of timidity. Boy, that leads into that one, doesn't it? Second Timothy. But God didn't give us a spirit of timidity, cowardice, cringing, and fear, but He's given us power, love, and a sound mind. Exodus 15, 13. Next page. The Lord is a warrior. 1 Samuel 17. David goes up against Goliath. David goes up against Goliath. And, and what happens is he shows up. Now, now what's been happening is Goliath has been showing up in front of an army of 30,000 guys and challenging them to bring out their best guy. And he would fight them and then whoever wins like wins the country, right? So the Philistines come, they got a bunch of guys, and, and they put out this guy who's nine feet tall, 400 pounds, buff, armor, sword, all this stuff, and he comes out every morning and yells at him, hey, send the guy out, let's fight. Hey, send somebody, let's fight, let's go. You got anybody? And it says the whole army is in fear. Fear overwhelmed them. Why? Because they begin to put themselves in the world system where they thought the fight had to be from them and their flesh rather than remembering what God had done and it was the battle was the Lord's. They were intimidated. They let the circumstance overwhelm them. They let the picture of that big guy change the picture, the image of their mind of who, how big God was. And David shows up. Now watch this. David shows up and he's this young guy and he's going to bring some food to his brothers. And they tell him, and he goes, hey, what's going on? He goes, well, this Goliath guy is huge. He's been coming after us. He yells every morning. And David goes, well, isn't somebody just going to kill him? No, you don't understand. He's huge. He goes, well, dude, I'll do it. Now, listen, he says that without ever seeing him. See, it didn't matter how big he was. His image was that God was massive, that God was huge. That his God was powerful. That he, it didn't matter how big the giant is. He didn't know if he was 12 feet tall, 8 feet tall. It didn't matter. Okay, let's take him. Let's go after him. And he goes after the Goliath and he takes him out. See, and, and fear has come after you and I in this world today and is yelling at us every day. You're not going to make it. All your investments are going south. You're going to be destroyed. Nothing's going to work. They're not going to figure it out. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. The compression. This, that. And, oh, and he's yelling. And if we're not careful, we put ourselves in a system where our image of God has become small and the image of the enemy and the fear has become large. 
And God says, I'm huge. I'm bigger than any enemy that you come against. I'm bigger than anything that yells at you. I'm bigger. Let's stand up. Keep your piece of paper. I want to go through something with you. Now, you can go through some of these scriptures and read them. And, and uh, I want to give you some instructions. Do you see that last page? Do you see that? It says how to beat fear. Beat fear with a strategy. I want to give you a strategy. You ready? You looking at it? Turn off CNN. <laughs> Don't, in other words, here's what I'm saying. We're not going to be blind to what's going on. We know what it is, but we're not going to be overwhelmed with the negative input into our minds all day long. Negative media images and words. Secondly, listen to messages of faith, peace, uplifting power. Here's some websites. Phil Pringle at the CCC website. Andrew Womack out of Colorado Springs, an amazing teacher of faith. He's got audios. and Those two you can download, uh, you know, things. What do you call it? Uh, podcast deals. Uh, HopeChurch.tv, you can download that. Put it on your iPod. Jack Hayford is more written stuff. Kenneth Copeland is more the written stuff you can download and print out and read and build your life. And there's others that some of you know. Go for it. Listen to that stuff. You know, uh, read Proverbs every morning. It's a book of wisdom. Read Psalms every night. That's the book of God's provision. Encourage each other. Speak good words over each other. Say, hey, man, how's that new job going? How's this thing going? I mean, it's like, uh, it's like John, you know, with the, with the wedding coming up. Uh, they called him this week, and, and uh, uh, they got a honeymoon, like after the wedding trip. Right? And uh, they called them up and they upgraded you guys, right? Like upgraded the whole trip. You need, they called you. I mean, this stuff happens. This stuff's going on. We're going in faith after this stuff. Encourage each other. I'm like, that's awesome. Encourage each other. Speak life into each other's lives. Pray. Pray for yourself, for others you know, for those in authority, for your brothers and sisters around the world going through trials. I've been places this year where people have, are going through such difficult times that no matter what happens here, we're still better off. I mean, by, by far. Declare faith over your life. So Jesus, when He spoke to the storm, He spoke it out. Speak it out. Think about, meditate on the good things God has done in your life. Journal words of peace, questions and prayers. Just write it down. God can handle your stuff. God, I'm not feeling good today. Okay, great. But you have inclined, you've come to me. You've come to my part of the boat. Attend connect groups. Show up at church meetings. Listen to praise music. Put it on this. You know, I'm serious. You know, uh, if, if all you listen to, if you're going to work and you're listening to Death Cab for Cutie, it's like, you get to work, you're like, I mean, I know I'm messing up some of your favorite groups. But, uh, but you understand what I'm saying? You, you, that stuff can get it. It's got a spirit in it. It may be mellow or whatever, but it's got something in it that it's not going to fill you with faith. Does that make sense? So put the things in your, in your CD player, in your car, iPod. They have faith in them. Listen to praise music. Do the smart, wise things in your job, career, school, family, friendships. In other words, open your eyes. Faith opens our eyes, doesn't close our eyes. When Peter got out of the boat, he didn't say, oh, there's not any waves. He saw the waves, but he knew he was going after Christ. Decrease your debt as fast as possible. Streamline and simplify your life. I'm, just, I'm telling you that as your pastor, this is where we need to go. And in tithe, give offerings, get into God's system of finance. 
Let's read this out loud and together. Matthew 19. Ready? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Again, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Again, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let's pray. Right now, as we, as we close, you may be, I mean, you may have, it, this may have really gotten on you this week. This may have really kind of messed you over in your life. And I want to pray for you. If, if fear has really, you know, it just, you know, and this thing really got to me this week, and I'm still kind of dealing with that, 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 that kind of that clenching thing. It just, it's kind of on my brain. It's like a little claw. And I just want to be set free of it. Just raise your hand. I want to pray for you right now. Just raise your hand. Yeah. Come on, somebody else. More guys. Come on, everybody. Okay, everybody raise your hands. Father, I thank you. Your word says you will never let us go. You will not. You will not. You will not. And I speak right now and I declare faith over my friends. Father, in the name of Jesus and by the power of that name, We declare freedom to anyone who's been captured or held captive or their mind has been buffeted by the enemy. Father, we declare freedom, open mind, open heaven, freedom and liberty. Father, I thank you. No weapon formed against us will prosper. I thank you. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. I thank you, Father, for life itself. I thank you, Father, that this week will be an amazing week because we will not walk in fear. And God, we just declare it right now. We refuse to walk in the world system. We refuse to walk in fear. We refuse to live in a world of frustration. Father, we're not going to live in denial. We're going to say it's there, but our God's bigger. Our God's stronger. Our God's greater. We walk in liberty. We walk in the power of the name of Jesus. We can speak to things and declare it, and the mountain is moved. Father, we pray it right now in Jesus' name. I declare freedom in Jesus' name. I thank you, Lord, even this afternoon as we go out of this place, there's a lift in our spirits. There's a rise in us. There's a God's going to do this thing. How big was David? He wasn't big enough. How big was God? Bigger than Goliath. Bigger than any enemy. So what did David do? He said, in the power of God, I will take your head off this day. Not because of my strength, but the strength of God Almighty. Do I run to the battle now? So, Father, we come towards you. We're not going to just stay on one end of the boat and cry, oh, woe is me. We're going to come towards you. We may not have the right words, and we may not say it the right way. But, Father, bring peace to our lives. Bring faith in us. Build us up in school, Father, in every area of our lives, I pray. And I thank you for doing that for everyone here in Jesus' name. Amen.